0: Hello, and welcome to episode 53 of The Modern Manager. I'm your host, Mamie Canfor-Stewart. First, a big thank you to the folks who've already switched over and joined the new Modern Manager community on MamieKS.com. I am super duper excited for the new community forum where you can ask questions, and not only can I respond, but you can respond to each other and share your experiences so that we can all be learning together. If you have not yet checked it out, go to MamieKS.com slash join, and you can select the membership level that is right for you. And a reminder that if you join before June 30th, you get some special bonus gifts from me. Second, I am planning to launch a new online course for managers, and I really need your help. Before I design the course or any other products, I want to be sure that they address your specific challenges. So please share your thoughts with me at MamieKS.com slash new dash course. And when you do, you will get a code for 10% off the course or whatever product that I end up developing based on your input as my way of saying thanks for the guidance. Okay. Now today's guest is Aaron Dignan. As the founder of The Ready, a global organization, transformation, and coaching practice, He helps companies large and small adopt new forms of self-organization and dynamic teaming. Aaron has sat on advisory boards for GE, American Express, PepsiCo, and Cooper Hewitt National Design Museum, as well as the board of directors for Smashburger. He is the author of Game Frame and Brave New Work, which is what we're going to talk about today. Brave Newark is a fascinating read, and Aaron and I get into some of the core concepts that he unpacks in the book about what we take for granted in our management and operational structures and our processes. He shares stories and examples of alternative ways of working, which I just found mind-blowing. Now here's my conversation with Aaron.
1: You're listening to The Modern Manager, a podcast dedicated to helping you be a rock star boss with a thriving team. Whether you're looking to upgrade your meetings, cultivate your team, or grow as a leader, this podcast is for you. Now, here's your host, Mamie Canfer stewart
0: Thank you so much for joining me today, Aaron. I have been reading your book, which came out in February. So, I'm really excited to dig into it today because my mind was like exploding on every single
1: page. (laughs) I'm so glad to hear that. Let's keep that going.
0: All right. So... In the book, you paint a picture of organizations as they are today as kind of a product of earlier management practices, which primarily were focused on efficiency. And you, had, you, you know, acknowledge that there are lessons to be learned from that, but that really maybe we've we've kind of outgrown those. And what we've ended up with is not the best place in terms of how organizations are run and managed and how people think about management. So can you walk us through a little bit of that what you're thinking about and kind of how that timeline works?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think what we all conceive of as modern management was really kind of, um, you know, created and and uh, invented on a factory floor about 100, 110 years ago, um, in the midst of the second industrial revolution, when we were working in, you know, in these manufacturing settings where, you know, predictability and control were important, and frankly, possible. Um, and we created a manager class to study the way everything was done and try to optimize and find the one best way to do Every step of the process. And so workers really became, um, you know, people that were meant to be compliant, that were meant to hit their quota, that were meant to do as they were told and and were being observed and and watched all the time. Um, And it created a real division between how we think about what the boss can and should do and what the what the worker can and should do. Um, and, you know, because that was such a big part of our economy and, and was so remarkably successful, frankly, in creating scaled products that were, you know, consistent, the fact that you can get a box of cornflakes that tastes the same from any grocery store in the country, um, you know, is all a result of that work. So the, you know, the quality of life and convenience and consistency and all those things that came out of that, um, created a real spread of that ideology, And now uh, managers and management um, in every industry, knowledge work, creative work, um, you know, social work, government, et cetera, it all kind of comes from that same playbook, which is top down, um, decisions flow down, information flows up, uh, you know, hierarchical silos where people are kind of grouped like with like the way you would group you know, screws and bolts in a factory. Um, and, and it is, you know, the job of the manager to, to think and to review and to decide and the job of everyone else to execute. Um, and I think, you know, in a factory setting in 1900, that was somewhat well suited, it might not have been the most humanist approach, but it was well suited to a world that wasn't changing that fast, um, in terms of, you know, what people wanted and how to make it right, the The shelf might have had three brands of cereal on it, not 300. Um, But now we live in this dynamic world that's so rapidly changing and so interconnected and so global where our expectations of, you know, our employers and our leaders are so much higher. We want meaning. We want mastery, purpose, autonomy, et cetera. Um, You know, it's not well suited. And it's actually failing us in a lot of, you know, both measurable and immeasurable ways.
0: Say more about that because I think we all live the experience of organization's not working, but, you know, what do you see when you go inside organizations in terms of what's not working and how this, these kind of old ways of thinking are not serving us anymore?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, certainly on, on the human side, we see, you know, roughly one in two people looking for another job, um, thinking about quitting, uh, one in two people disengaged at work that are kind of working for the weekend. So just uh, on, a sh- on a pure kind of human numbers basis, um, we're not really showing up for it. We're not loving it. Uh, and then we see enormous amounts of organizational debt in the form of, you know, bureaucracy and policies and rules and restrictions and, you know, permission seeking and learned helplessness. That means that we're just not getting as much done as we could and should. Um, you know, Gary Hamill and his colleague, Michelle Zanini, recently released a study that you know, suggested that bureaucracy in the form of needless policies and, you know, unnecessary layers, um, you know, too many managers is actually leading to a $3 trillion loss every year and just wasted productivity. So, um, just for the U S alone. So there's, there's a lot of, um, red tape in the system that's slowing us down. It's frustrating us. It's, you know, it's making us uncomfortable and it's, um, you know, it's really hurting our ability to achieve our purpose. I mean, corporate longevity has gone down for the last 50 years. It's now, you know, true that half the S&P 500 gets wiped out either through M&A or through going out of business every 12 years or so. Um, you know, corporate return on assets is down. We can't make as much profit with the stuff that we have as we used to. So I think we're just really hitting the edge of what this way of working can do for us. And we're feeling it emotionally and and kind of, um, you know, numerically
0: so obviously this is not an easy problem to solve or we would have already (laughs) solved it by now but you propose a kind of an interesting at least for me a, a totally new way of thinking about how work can be organized so what what is the solution that you propose and and how did you come to it
1: Well, I think we just have to we have to accept that the nature of the organization and the market is different than we used to believe that it was. So I talk in the book about the difference between complicated and complex systems. A complicated system is something like a watch or an engine that can be predicted and controlled that can be understood by an expert that is unlikely to surprise us. It's a causal system with cause and effect. A complex system is something like traffic or the weather or a six-year-old. It is dispositional. We know the general direction it's trending, but we can't be sure what will happen next. We're not sure what will happen if we, you know, poke it. It will surprise us, you know, with, with reactions that do what we want and what we don't want. And so, you know, a complex system requires that we interact with it, right? A problem can be solved in a complicated system, can fix a watch, but a problem can't be solved in a complex system. It can only be managed. Nobody ever comes in from the garden and says, honey, I fix the garden. And so if that's true, then we have to extrapolate back to organizations and say, wow, when I have 10 or 100 or 10,000 people coming together to create something in the world, is that a watch? Is that a machine that I can tune and tell what I want and put our values on posters and it will be true? Or is it a complex system that I have to nurture and interact with and that we all are kind of building as we go? When you realize that the market is the same way, then you have to ask yourself, you know, we don't know what's going to happen with the market. How do we, how can we adapt? How can we learn? How can we kind of steer continuously? Because the reality is that we're not sure what's going to happen. We're not sure what's going to work. We're not sure what competitor or what customer is going to change things next. And so the idea that we somehow need to have A perfect process or a perfect system or, you know, a very tightly constrained group of people is very antithetical to a world that is, you know, dynamic, where we need a lot of judgment, a lot of thinking on our feet, a lot of adaptivity, responsiveness at the edge. And so I think for for leaders and managers to then recognize, all right, we're a complex system that I can't just change at will. The market is a complex system that we can't predict. It means that we need to adopt a different approach, right? We need to start thinking about Agility, testing and learning, you know, recognizing uncertainty and building more steering mechanisms into our system, less annual planning and more dynamic planning, right? More scenario planning, more kind of living in the moment and letting the edge do what it does, right? If you have customers and employees that are out there in the field, that are out in a location that you're not a part of, that are even in your own office, that are not sitting right with you this moment, they need to be able to exercise judgment and react and sense and learn where they are in order for this thing to kind of, you know, really be successful today. So that's the shift at its essence.
0: So when I was reading about this in the book, you used an analogy around a traffic intersection that, you know, personally really struck a chord with me because the idea that there's machines and there's gardens makes perfect sense. But then trying to like, think about how to shift the way that I work so that I'm working in a garden and not treating my garden like a machine was a much more challenging thing for me to wrap my brain around. So
1: <laughs> can you can you talk yeah. about this
0: intersection analogy?
1: Yeah, I think it's I think it's the most interesting one for for the world of work right now. So I talk a lot about an operating system as sort of this underlying set of assumptions and principles and practices inside a business or, or an institution. So the OS is kind of that foundational layer. And the, the intersection is a great way to look at two different OSs kind of in action. So we have, we have two roads crossing. The goal is obviously to maximize the flow of traffic while minimizing you know, the risk of accidents. And so one one OS approach would start with the assumption that people can't be trusted, that they need to be told what to do, that we need tight controls and constraints. And so you end up with a lighted intersection. you got the red, yellow, and green light. You've got blinking arrows. You've got all this signage. You've got electricity. You've got poles. And you've got a whole you know control center somewhere far away that's analyzing the flow of traffic and making decisions about how that's all going to work. And the, the sort of job of the driver is to be compliant, right? To, you know, sit there, check your phone, we'll tell you when to go. You don't really have to be present in this situation other than to take orders. And this works quite well and, and it's quite popular. I mean, it's by far the most kind of normal uh, intersection that we see other than maybe stop signs. But there's another operating system, there's another OS and another set of assumptions in the roundabout. So the roundabout takes the assumption that you can be trusted that you can be responsible, that you're in fact kind of responsible for how you show up in the system, and that we can handle all that complexity with just two simple rules, go with the flow of traffic and give the right away to people in the circle. And so, you know, the roundabout, you're on notice, you're present, you have to be uh, mindful when you enter it, you're, you know, because your job that you're doing is, is necessary, and, and the safety of others depends on you. And so it's, you're on a little bit higher alert, you're, you're more present in the system. So those are two different sets of assumptions, two different OSs. What's fascinating to me is that, you know, when you ask the question, like, which one's safer, which one's cheaper to build and maintain, which one has higher throughput, which one works better when the power goes out, the answer to all those questions is the roundabout. But when you ask which one we have more of and which one we feel safer in, for most people, the answer is the lighted intersection. We have 1113x more lighted intersections than we do roundabouts in the U.S., so there's this impression, there's this status quo that like, oh, of course, they must be better. But for most situations, not all, but for most situations, they're just not better. They're actually not as effective as the alternative. And so without getting into like, you know, traffic statistics and debating every single little nuance of that, the takeaway point is that for everything at work, whether it be a budget or a way we make decisions or the way we run a meeting or the way we think about, you know, our resources or the way we structure teams, there's kind of a lighted intersection way to do it which is the way that assumes less trust and assumes you know control is the goal, compliance is the goal. And then there's a roundabout way to do it, which is like, well, what if we did trust? And what if we sort of assumed positive intent and responsibility and created just enough feedback loops and just enough simple rules that people could just show up with their judgment and you know show up aware of what our goal and our purpose is and solve the problem that way. And so that is, that's the kind of thought experiment that I put to, to leaders and teams all the time is, do, you know, is what you have a roundabout or is it a lighted intersection? And is it, is that serving you?
0: So I love this analogy it makes it so clear. And I'm actually kind of curious when you ask organizations that question, what do you hear back? Are they, is it pretty consistent that organizations are run like stoplights?
1: Well, it's 100% consistent about that. Yeah, I mean, you find that just the vast, vast majority of decisions, they're trying to control for every possible outcome. They're trying to make sure that the policies are as, you know, as long and clear as possible. They're trying to make sure that they, you know, rather than specifying what not to do, they're trying to specify what to do. So they, they start from that premise. But usually it's just that they haven't done the thought experiment. So if, if you actually ask someone, is there another way to solve this problem? It's often the first time they've ever been asked. And so it's kind of like, oh, yeah, you know, what else might there be? And then when we look at some of the other examples of, you know, companies that have solved these problems differently, people are like, okay, okay, okay. So there there is some willingness, I think, to engage. But it just comes after sort of taking the time to actually ask the question, which we never have time to do, right? We just go, 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 meeting to meeting, project to project, day to day, and we keep our heads down. So it's, you know, just stopping and making space is really the most important first step.
0: So can you give an example of an organization or a team where you've seen them apply these more organic principles that you're talking about in terms of the operating system?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, here's here's kind of a classic example. I think I mentioned this in the book, but there's a, there's a brass auto parts foundry called Favi in France, and they make, you know, incredible, you know, brass gearboxes and other things. They, you know, when their new CEO or their former CEO rather took over decades ago, he was walking the factory floor and um noticed someone waiting with a with a kind of pink slip for gloves at the supply area and it was all under lock and key and you know you have to wait and they bring your gloves out and he asked the guy you know what's what's going on here and what was going on was in order to get a new pair of work gloves a machinist had to go to their manager show their you know damaged gloves get a permission slip leave their machine go to the center turn it in wait get the gloves go back to the machine and the guy was like how much do the gloves cost? And they're, you know, five euro. How much does it cost to have your machine down for the 30 minutes while you do this whole rigmarole? Thousands of euro. (laughs) And so it was a classic example of, you know, in order to solve the problem of people stealing equipment, we've created this elaborate stoplight. But the but it's costing us so much more than the one in a hundred people who steals a pair of gloves. So of course he was like, hey, guess what? From now on, the gloves and all the other equipment is free. And we trust you because you're adults. And if somebody you know, abuses the policy, we'll try to find out who it was and deal with them. But we're not going to punish everybody with this Byzantine policy just because somebody stole gloves 10 years ago. <laughs> And so I think that's a really good example. And there's lots of that, these little policies, these little organizational debts that are hiding in organizations, the way that we, you know, manage travel policies and the way that we approve, you know, budgets and decisions and, you know, allow people to move between teams. There's lots of toll gates and stoplights trying to protect us from ourselves that often cost us, They cost us our resilience, our adaptivity, our ability to find new solutions, and our, frankly, our ability to just feel like human beings.
0: I'm thinking about like all of the policies that are written for like that one person who did it one time and how that's not a good way to run an organization or to even run a team is like I had one employee one time who did something wrong. And so now I need to totally change how my entire team works because of that.
1: It's because we think our job as managers is to ensure perfect execution. And that was taught to us on those factory floors because we're looking for, you know, six sigma quality on the products. But our job is no longer to create perfect execution in the vast majority of situations. Our job is to create continually growing capability. And so it's, it's a very different mission and a very different mandate. And yeah, you know the, the number of policies that get in our way that were built for one person, Jason Fried and uh, DHH from uh, Basecamp talk about don't scar on the first cut, right? Like something goes wrong, don't immediately leap to policy. It might just be this thing that happens every once in a while. And that you don't want to necessarily inhibit the whole system just because of that.
0: Yeah. So all right. if I'm now thinking about how I apply all of these lessons and learnings into my work as a manager, where are some places that I can start when I don't have control over the entire company policy or culture or even being able to influence my CEO, but I just want to run my team using these principles that are going to help us you know, unleash that potential, that you know, maybe to this point has been a little bit more constrained.
1: Yeah. I mean, the good news is that most of the teams we coach underestimate how much influence they have over their own, you know, way of working. So there's probably a lot more that you can do than you think. And I think, you know, a couple of good places to start. One is just to ask the team the question that we ask every team, which is what's stopping you from doing the best work of your life, which is a powerful question because it's not just like, what's bothering you or what's, you know, what's slowing you down or anything, but it really sets the bar at like, if we're not doing the best work of our lives, why not? you know, and what, what might it be? And they'll tell you, you know, we have meetings to prepare for meetings, or I don't have the information that I need, or you always second guess the choices I make, or, you know, whatever they, they will do. And frankly, you know, one of the, your big jobs as a leader is to create the, the safety and the space for people to tell the truth. So you can tell by the answers you get, if everybody's like, oh, nothing, then you're not doing a great job. You need to like open up that vulnerability and open up that, space for real candor because you, there are things and you will hear them. And so I think that's that's the first step. And then of course, you know any of those things, the next question is, well, what can we do in our team to take one step forward on that issue? So maybe we can't change the whole budgeting process. maybe we can't change the whole you know kind of operating rhythm for the company. But what can we do? and and I think having a conversation and a brainstorm about that, we've created lots of little you know tips and tricks in the book that help you think of things you could do that you hadn't maybe thought of before. And then run an experiment, you know, go take one week, two weeks, four weeks, don't make it forever to try something different and then sit down and say, did that serve us? Are things, you know, better in a small way? Because we tried that, you know, so that's, I think that's one piece. And then the other thing that leaders in particular can do, it maps back to one of the stories I covered in the book, but there's a um, US uh, nuclear sub captain um, by the name of David Marquette, who took over an underperforming sub and was told he couldn't change any of the people and needed to turn it around and all this. And when people would come to him for orders, he would just ask them, what do you intend to do? And in many cases, they hadn't really thought it through. They hadn't been asked to hold that responsibility. And so they were like, I, I have no idea. And they'd have to go back and, you know, just dwell on it. And then they'd come with their intention. And he'd say, very well, you know, as long as it seems safe to try, do what you think you need to do. So I love seeing leaders that maybe are not used to that switching to that model of, you know, when someone asks you for advice or what to do or, you know, start with, well, what do you what do you think? What do you intend to do? Like put it back on them to start this pattern of empowerment and, you know, be be more judicious with your advice, right? Because your advice might help them get perfect execution, but it won't necessarily help them grow their capability as much as the process of thinking harder about it, deciding what they want, trying something, maybe even failing in a way that's safe to try for the for the team's overall health. You know, that's a different journey to walk and it's a lot more like, you know, trying to raise a kid who never skins their knee. They will not be a great runner. So you have to kind of hold the space for learning as opposed to just holding the space for excellence.
0: That was just so beautifully said. It's something that I thought I talk and think about a lot in terms of how can you be in service of your team and your people rather than being the answer that they're seeking.
1: Yeah, if you're a hero, then something's broken.
0: Exactly, exactly. Although I am wondering how much, not pushback, but I'd imagine that it can be a little bit jarring for someone the first time that a, a team leader or a manager says, well, what do you think we should do? Okay, just do it. Are we so conditioned to follow orders and not make mistakes? Like, that, there's a big fear to overcome if you're now being empowered and you've never been empowered before in that way.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, the book's not called "Easy New Work"; it's called "Brave <laughs> New Work." And I think, you know, th- you're right, and and the only thing you have to do to to confirm that you're right is ask the average American how they feel about driving in a roundabout. Ah, they'll be like, "Oh, you know, I don't like it. I feel like everybody's crazy. I feel I don't like it. something about it makes me disconcerted." And it is that feeling of like, "Wow, now I'm I'm on the hook, right?" And and so there is a certain gravity to that that i think everybody feels but there are a lot of benefits as well i mean you know your sense of self your identity your learning your development your growth your mastery your sense of community and trust you know they all go up once that becomes more second nature so you kind of have to get in there and you know be uncomfortable for a little while and thrash with that and then over time it's like oh this you know i start to feel more like i'm in the groove on this
0: so is there something that we should do to help smooth this transition? Meaning, like, should we tell our team, hey, guys, I'm reading this book, Brave New Work, and I want to rethink how, how we make decisions and how we do our work together. And, you know, here's what I'm thinking. Here's my plan. Here's, here's how I'm going to respond when you come to me. Like, is setting up their expectation helpful or is that just confusing? Or is there another way to help smooth that transition?
1: Well, I think, I mean, for starters, you can, you absolutely can be, you know, high candor, high transparency about what you're doing and thinking about. I think that's totally beneficial. And most teams, if you say, Hey, I'm thinking about how I can create an environment with more autonomy and transparency and, you know, responsibility, they're going to be like, great, you know, I'll, I'll believe it when I see it, but that sounds lovely. So, you know, so I think that's okay. I think mainly the job is, you know, how do you create an environment with psychological safety? So where people feel like they can take you know risks at work and that means how you react to early experiments early failures early places where we're trying something different is really going to matter so yes say what you're thinking about but but really start thinking about how to create that environment where people feel like they can take that risk and there's not going to be the you know typical consequence which by the way does not mean it's feedback free so it means really delineating the difference between consequences and feedback So, you know, high feedback, high candor, high flow of information is great. You know, high consequence for a low risk, you know, activity is not great. So you have to segment those two. The other thing that you can do is just start to pay attention to other things that create, you know, effective teaming. So like we know now empirically that equal talk time is one of the best predictors of team success. So if you listen, you know, if a computer listens basically to three hours of meetings with your team and the average amount of time that everybody spends talking is roughly the same, that's an extremely good indicator that your team is going to perform well. And if all we hear is one person talking, probably the leader, then that is not going to be a good indicator. So starting some new patterns like that, like starting meetings with check-in rounds or, or ending meetings with checking out. What did you notice? What can we do better? Hearing from everyone, inviting in the quieter voices, pushing you know gently back the, the louder voices, things like that that seem subtle actually create space for this work to happen. Because we can't all be sensors and we can't all be adapting and changing the way we work if we can't all talk, if we can't all be heard, if we can't all be heard in the same way. So I think that softer work needs to happen at the same time in order to create the conditions for this stuff. And then the main thing, honestly, that that leaders need to do is create space. So that we have time for this because it's very easy to blame the the quarterly goals, the project, the customer, the urgency of our work for why we can't do a retrospective on Friday, why we can't start a new experiment, why we can't take the five minutes at the end of the meeting because, oh, we're just so busy. It's so easy to excuse. The leader can hold that space and protect that space and say, no, 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 changing how we work and becoming better at how we do what we do, not just what we do is so fundamentally important that I'm going to protect it. You know that's a big big deal and and i think maybe one of the most prominent ways that teams fail when we do this work with them is that it's all fun and games until it's actually time that's required and then suddenly it's like where is everybody
0: That is, I think, a perfect place to end because it is so true. And I as a coach see it all the time with my teams as well as they get really excited about doing the thinking work. But then as soon as it's time to start to plan out how we're going to change and how we're actually going to implement all these new big ideas, they're like, ah, that's going to be way too hard. That's going to take up way too much time. Yeah,
1: I think I hear my mom calling. I got to (laughs) go.
0: Yes. So I I, I love that. Like, that's where we should end. It's like, it takes time, yes, but that time is the most well-spent time you can invest as a team. So if, no one's gonna, if you as a manager aren't going to protect that and honor it and make sure that everyone is engaged in it, then you might as well not do the big thinking to begin with.
1: If the old quote goes, uh, if I had five minutes to chop down a tree, I'd spend three minutes sharpening my axe. You know, most teams spend six seconds sharpening their axe. <laughs> so <laughs> make the time to do it better and you'll get it back in spades.
0: Absolutely. All right. So as we shift to the ending here, Aaron, tell us about one of the rockstar managers that you had the privilege of working with or for and what made him or her so great.
1: So interestingly, my career has been almost entirely entrepreneurial. So I've had partners, but I haven't really ever had a formal manager, um, which has been interesting. And what I've ended up doing is seeking out the parts of the manager in mentors, advisors, people around me that can offer me some of the things that I wanted from a manager, because I certainly didn't want someone to tell me what to do. I like to figure it out for myself. And I didn't want, you know, somebody looking over my shoulder all the time. But I did want someone to challenge my thinking or to ask me interesting questions or that I could rely on when I got stuck. And so I kind of built a network of people around me that were good at that. And what's interesting is the more more sort of sophisticated I got about what I was doing and the more, you know, accomplished my mentors got, the more they would refuse to give me advice. (laughs) And so it was sort of like, you know what, The, the more we learn and the more wise we become about how uncertain the world is and how everybody's different. It was sort of like, you know what, you're going to be fine. Just go, go try the thing you're going to try and learn what you're going to learn. And anything I tell you is either going to bounce off or it'll be the wrong thing because it worked for me 20 years ago. So I have a lot more conversations like that these days with people I look up to who are very supportive, but they're mostly supportive of me just getting in the water and thrashing.
0: I feel like that is exactly what we just talked about, right? Of having as a manager saying, well, what do you think you should do rather than giving you know, this is what I think you should do. So it's it's there's a nice little uh, parallelism there.
1: Yeah, yeah. It can be frustrating to hear, but in many ways, it's freeing.
0: Awesome. All right. So where should people find more about you? And I highly suggest everyone pick up your book, Brave New Work. So where can they find that?
1: So the community and the conversation for Brave New Work is at bravenewwork.com. And that's where you can find you know places to buy it and uh, hear more about some of the different events that we're doing around it. And then the work that I do with my firm, The Ready, is at theready.com. So keeps things nice and simple.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much for talking with me today. I've, I am just so excited to now finish the book because uh, I'm only partway through <laughs> because I just know that I'm going to learn even more from you know, every single page I turn. So thank you again for being here.
1: Oh, thank you for having me.
0: I really loved that conversation. If you are ready to put what we talked about to work in your team, Aaron is providing an operating system canvas worksheet and instructions on how to use it, which you can get when you join the Modern Manager community at slash join That's M A M I E K S as in slash join And a friendly reminder that if you join before June 30th, 2019, you also get two bonus gifts a Modern Manager mini notebook and a Meteor meeting notebook to help you clarify your meeting outcomes. All the links are in the show notes, and they are in your inbox if you subscribe to my newsletter, which you can do at maymeks.com slash podcast. Thank you again for listening. Until next time. Meetings are one of the most critical components of healthy collaboration, and teams are at the heart of how we work. Meteor helps you use your time in meetings productively, build healthy relationships with your colleagues and move work forward. To learn how we do it, visit meteor.com. That's M E E T E O R.com.
1: You've been listening to the modern manager. You're already becoming a rockstar boss of a thriving team. I can tell to ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. And join the mailing list at MamieKS.com slash podcast. That's M-A-M-I-E-K-S dot com slash podcast to get show notes and other special content delivered directly to your inbox. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.